0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 125, for the first half of February 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Big Bad Black Hole Conspiracy. The specific claim for this episode is a rather simple one. Black holes don't exist. You might think that this is a crazy claim made only in the fringes of the internet, but at least once a year or so I see the same claim made by a real, otherwise mainstream, physicist. So, let's look at some of the arguments made against them, them being black holes, and let's look at some of the arguments for them, again, them being black holes. I need to work on my antecedents, obviously. I first got the idea for this episode when I was browsing through Mike Barr's review of the movie Interstellar from a few months ago. When I saw this line, I was shaking my head sadly. Quote, Black holes, of course, are a lot different than wormholes because everybody knows they exist, right? Well, not really. End quote. Mike actually brings up several points that I had thought about for this episode, so it's worth quoting him and then going back to examine each one. First, there's this, quote, A new paper by Laura mersini Houghton a physics professor at UNC Chapel Hill College of Arts and Sciences, concludes that not only two event horizons not exist, black holes don't exist either. Confronted with this new information, Stephen Hawking has now concluded that his entire life's work, the study of black holes, may have been in vain. End quote. So, the basic idea here is that a physicist says they don't exist, and now even apparently Stephen Hawking seems to be jumping ship. Definitely worth looking into later on in this episode. Then there's this, quote, And there's one other issue. Like the wormhole, no one has ever observed a black hole. Even NASA's own website on black holes has this to say about them, quote, Because no light can get out, people can't see black holes. They are invisible, end quote. Kind of like dark matter. Scientists are sure they exist, but have never seen one and probably never will. Maybe they should just rename black holes unicorns, end quote. This is two logical fallacies wrapped up into an argument. Argument from incredulity and burden of proof, as well as a little bit of ridicule. I'll discuss those after the main segment. They're not really worth talking about in the main one other than talking about this next quote, quote, but... The mainstream guys who get paid to write papers about this stuff, parentheses, I wish I did, and parentheses, argue that while we will never observe a black hole, we quote unquote know they exist because we can see all the light and energy they emit. Huh? I thought nothing could escape from a black hole, and now they emit light and energy? My caveman brain is confused, end quote. So I would point out that Mike Barra is actually paid to write and talk about a whole lot of stuff that most people don't believe in and just make things up kind of as he goes along. So... I wouldn't necessarily be complaining if I were him about scientists who have to spend weeks or months writing grants that have maybe a 5 to 15 percent chance of getting funded. This is astronomers, medical scientists, less than 5 percent chance of getting funded. And then we have to do the work and make sure that it makes sense with everything else that we know about the universe, and then spend you know, maybe 100 to 500 hours just to write up the results and make the results get through peer review, including all of the revisions and all of the, uh, well, revisions mostly, and responding to reviewers and all that other stuff. But my own little rant aside about the ease of writing a book about whatever you want to make up off the top of your head versus actually doing real science, uh, besides that little rant, This point about actually being able to see light and energy from a black hole is a common misconception that it's worth getting into as well. Mike then goes on to give a few uh, cited evidences for black holes that I'll also get into a little bit, but then he explains them away as, one, it could be something else, two, read my book where I totally blew away mainstream science and showed that there's another force that makes all of these effects happen that scientists don't believe in, and three, All the scientists are wrong, even though their observations may be right. Then there's also this, quote, The simple fact is that black holes, wormholes, time dilation, and curved space exist only on paper. There is, in fact, no observational evidence of their existence. In fact, many of the observed effects cited to support their existence often have perfectly viable alternative explanations that make far more sense. But to admit that would be to admit that their precious equations may be wrong, and that is a place that mainstream cosmologists just can't go. But the simple truth is, no matter how many degrees Kip Thorne or science chode Neil throw around, that would be Neil deGrasse Tyson, no matter how many times the media calls their work or the film hard science, it isn't. It isn't science at all, because None of it is testable, or even based on observation. You can no more find truth in a mathematical equation than you can hear a beautiful melody by reading musical notation. Science is observation, experimentation, measurement, and insight. It isn't numbers on a chalkboard. It is possible that black holes, wormholes, time dilation, and the curvature of space exist. I'm just arguing that no proof of any of them exists today." End quote. Besides again invoking the burden of proof fallacy, along with a little ad hominem thrown in, which is common in most of Mike Barr's writing, Mike's last few sentences here clearly indicate that he does not understand how science works. As such, I'm going to start this topic by discussing that very thing. If you could try to summarize everything about science into perhaps one overriding goal, it's to understand how everything works. We do this by developing hypotheses for how something works, and then designing tests of those hypotheses. If the test can't falsify that hypothesis, then we come up with another test to try to be more rigorous about it. Eventually, if the hypothesis has withstood all attempts to disprove it, it becomes a theory the pinnacle of a scientific idea. But a theory doesn't necessarily have explaining power. And inherently, it is still a model of what's going on. But it's a very powerful model because that theory can be used to make predictions. Newton's theory of gravity is used to predict how an unpowered, unguided missile will behave. For the simple act of playing any sport that involves a ball Your brain has developed its own theories of how things work, with gravity, wind, your strength, properties of materials that the ball may run into, and so on, all of those factored in. Your brain represents them as neural pathways and chemical methods of storage. Scientists use equations. Therefore, when Mike states, quote, You can no more find truth in a mathematical equation than you can hear a beautiful melody by reading musical notation, science is observation, experiment, measurement, and insight, end quote, He is exactly correct in that second sentence, but he is exactly wrong in the first. They are not mutually exclusive, so long as by using the word truth, you're not talking about some metaphysical truth that's unattainable, in which case we're making a straw man because science can't do that. Rather, we're talking about truth as in the ability to make models that precisely predict how things will behave. And as a side note... I would argue that many musicians actually can hear music when they read sheet music. They can imagine how those notes will play out in their head. I haven't done music in quite a while, but when I played music uh, in band and orchestra through probably for a decade or so, I was able to look at sheet music and actually hear how it would sound in my head. So it's a bad analogy, but that's a little bit beside the point. But getting back to my point, That is how science works. With that in mind, that we want to create a model, test that model, and then make predictions using it, we can turn our attention back to black holes. One of those predictions is what should happen if an object is very massive. Well, to escape from it, you would have to move faster. That's why it's easier to get off the moon than it is to get off of Earth. That's why if we could launch missions that are already in Earth orbit, it would take a lot less fuel. But what happens if you have the same mass, but you shrink the object in size? Well, as you get closer to the center of mass, you have to move faster to get away, and you get to a point where the mass is concentrated in an object so tiny that the escape velocity, that speed that you have to achieve in order to get away from the object, is now faster than the speed of light. In a nutshell, that's what a black hole is. It's an object that's so dense because it has so much matter packed into such a small space that the escape velocity is faster than light. Now, there are entire college courses taught about black holes, so I am very much glossing over every single detail here, but explaining how black holes form and more about their theoretical properties is beyond the purpose of this episode. There are plenty of internet websites out there that can get you started on that, as well as probably an episode of Astronomy Cast. Being an episode about whether or not black holes exist, I have to talk about both special and general relativity, at least a little bit. The idea behind special relativity is that the faster an object moves relative to another, the slower time passes for it. That doesn't have much to do with black holes, but it becomes important for some of the observations that are made of stuff moving around them. General relativity is what is more important to the discussion of black holes, but it is more how they form and how we observe their effects and how they're thought of in a scientific community than understanding the basic idea of a black hole, that a black hole is an object that's so dense that light can't escape it. The modern concept of the black hole came out of solutions to einstein's relativity equations which showed what would happen if you tried to describe the gravity of a point mass that is an object that has collapsed in on itself so that it literally has zero dimensions it only has mass after nearly two decades and many physicists working on the problem and publishing papers The modern idea of the black hole was effectively born, which is an object, such as a star more than three times the mass of the sun, that is so massive that nothing can stop it from collapsing in on itself. As it collapses into that theoretical point object, it becomes small to the point where its surface is now smaller than where the escape velocity is the speed of light. That surface is then termed the event horizon, because an object would need to travel faster than light to escape it, and we don't know of anything that can travel that fast, then we can't know what goes on past the event horizon. But it's not really a physical boundary, at least probably not. Uh, This is something that I'll talk about later in the episode, maybe in 20 minutes or so. Rather, the event horizon is just a a boundary that's defined on the scale of increasing escape velocity as you get closer and closer to the center of mass. As far as relativity and other relevant physics predicts, the mass in the middle continues to collapse in on itself to a point of no dimension, an infinite density, or maybe a quantum foam, or a quantum singularity, or who knows what. And when I use the word quantum, I actually mean quantum. I don't mean it as a a Deepak Chopraism. Uh, The problem is that, as the humorous t-shirt puts it, quote, black holes are where God divided by zero, end quote. We have a lot of theoretical physics that predicts what should happen as you approach the center of a black hole and what goes on as the object that is the black hole collapses. But we don't have a physics to predict what happens to that original object because our equations, in some cases, are quite literally being divided by zero. We need a new physics that merges relativity and quantum mechanics to predict it. But all because the theories are incomplete does not mean that they are wrong. And there is a lot of evidence for black holes as well as for relativity. And because of the issue of the burden of proof being raised with respect to black holes in much of theoretical physics... I think an aside is needed for evidence of relativity, because uh, this is something else that a bunch of people deny is real. Uh, both general and special relativity are scientific theories. There have been literally hundreds, if not thousands, of separate, independent observational tests for, over, um, or for both over the last century, each one stressing more and more of the model's predictions every single one has been in line with the predictions of relativity to within the measurement errors. A simple, everyday example that most everyone has some experience with is GPS. GPS positioning, or global positioning, system positioning, I guess it's redundant, so GPS would not be nearly as accurate as it is if it did not factor in relativity's effects because of the mass of Earth versus where the satellites are in space. What do I mean by that? Well, GPS works by knowing exactly where satellites are, and exactly what time it is on them. If I'm on the ground, and I have a signal from at least three satellites, and I know what time that signal was sent and what time I received it, then I can calculate how far away each satellite is from me, and I can tell you, based on the difference of arrival time between those signals, where exactly I am. Uh, So let's back up a little bit. For example, let's just use one satellite. Based on the time on that satellite and the time it arrived to my clock, I know how far I am from that satellite based on the speed of light. If I know where that satellite is supposed to be in space at that exact time, then I've just defined a circle on the Earth, the perimeter of which I must be on because I'm that distance away from the satellite. If you add another satellite, and you have another time, another difference in time between the time that signal was sent and when I get it, and you know where that satellite is, then I have another circle, the perimeter of which defines where I could possibly be on Earth based on that second satellite. Those two circles, the perimeters, only intersect at two locations. Okay? Add a third satellite. With that third satellite, again, I can only be on the perimeter of a circle defined by the distance I have to be from that satellite based on the timing difference. Well, the three circle perimeters can only now intersect at one point. If I keep adding more and more and more satellites, then that point, the uncertainty in it, based on the uncertainty in the time, the uncertainty in where exactly those satellites are, well, that uncertainty shrinks. And as it shrinks, I can know my location better and better and better. You really only need three satellites to get an actual location. But because of the uncertainties built in, the uncertainty in your actual location goes down as you add more satellites. You can be more accurate as to where you are on the planet. That's why uh, if you have a field GPS and you actually can see how many satellites you're connected to, and the signal strength of those satellites, you'll see that as you add more and more satellites, Like if you come out from a door of a house, then the accuracy of your location increases as you add more satellites. So what does that have to do with a black hole? Or not a black hole, but relativity. Well, the only way to get the level of accuracy you need in those clocks is by factoring in both special and general relativity. Why? Why? Well, to get to a few meters, as in maybe 10 feet or so precision, of your location on the planet, then you need timing accuracy to about 20 to 30 nanoseconds of those clocks, or one part in 10 to the negative 8 seconds. That's only possible if you factor in special and general relativity. Special relativity is important because the satellites are moving relative to me. Therefore, their clocks move more slowly, by about 7 microseconds per day due to time dilation. Note that that's over a factor of 100 larger than the precision that we need for those GPS clocks. Then, there's general relativity. General relativity factors in because the satellites are high above Earth, farther from the center of mass than we were on the ground, or than we are on the ground, and so time moves more quickly for them than it does for us, because we're trapped farther within Earth's gravity well. The predicted effects are that the satellite's clocks should tick faster by about 45 microseconds per day. Add the two up, remembering the positive and negative signs, and that's a net of the satellite's clocks moving faster than our clocks by 38 microseconds per day. 38 microseconds is a factor of over a thousand larger than our required accuracy for the clocks on the GPS satellites. So If either relativity theory were wrong, that's special or general, then this would very quickly prove itself out in GPSs being horribly off for even a few days at a rate of about 10 kilometers in accuracy per day. A few meter accuracy would fail within minutes. Mike Barrett claims that all this shows is that mechanical clocks, even though these aren't mechanical clocks, uh, move more slowly and doesn't prove time dilation. Well, okay, Uh, but there is a lot more evidence for both relativities beyond what I just gave as a simple example, or as a single example, literally hundreds of lines of evidence that point to both general and spectral relativity being correct. So at this point, both are certainly theories in the scientific sense, and therefore we can continue to use their predictions of what should happen under various circumstances, including the formation of a black hole. So embedded within all of that previous discussion spanning the last 15 minutes or so is the theoretical evidence for black holes. They naturally come out of the theories that otherwise have been shown to accurately model the universe. But what observational evidence is there for black holes? There are several different lines of observational evidence of their effects, so I'm going to discuss two of them. As Mike actually correctly stated, you cannot directly observe a black hole. But, just like I can observe the effects of wind, but I can't actually see wind, we can observe the effects of black holes. One of them is the motion of stars around the center of our own galaxy. The center of our galaxy is called simply Sagittarius A star. That's because it's in the constellation Sagittarius, and it is a massive x-ray source that's part of a the larger astronomical feature known as Sagittarius A. It is thought to be a massive black hole with a mass of about 4.1 to 4.3 million times the mass of our Sun. But why? Well, a couple of reasons, but the one I'm going to talk about is stellar orbits. We have literally, over the last two decades, watched stars complete orbits around the center of the galaxy. One of them is known simply as S2, It orbits Sagittarius A star in about 15.5 years. We also know how far away it is. It's about 8 kiloparsecs, or 26,000 light years. And so based upon how far it moves across our own sky, and then how far away it is, we can use basic trigonometry to characterize its orbit as being around 120 AU, or about 17 light hours in an orbit around Sagittarius A star. That's, what, about four times, no, three times the average distance of Pluto from our Sun. That's how far this star orbits from the center of the galaxy. Knowing its period and knowing its orbital distance, we can go back to the primary sponsor of this show, Johannes Kepler, and his third law of planetary motion, and very basic math gives you the mass of the object that it's orbiting, the mass of Sagittarius A star. What I love about this stuff is that it's so basic. Yeah, you need a good telescope and several years to make these observations, and you need math that was developed four centuries ago, but it's incredibly hard to argue with them because claiming they're wrong would mean that so much other stuff that's completely unrelated is also wrong. Like, uh, I don't know, um, how fast the moon orbits Earth and the mass of Earth. It would mean that that's wrong. But Yeah. So, moving on. uh, It's one of those things that's sort of just hard to comprehend, how someone can just blatantly say, oh, no, that's just wrong, without giving any actual evidence. But that's my own issue, I suppose. Uh, So, moving on, we have the mass of Sagittarius A-star, 4 million solar masses. And all of that mass must be contained well within 120 AU because that's the size of S2's orbit. It can't be orbiting an object that's the size of its own orbit. The object has to be much, much smaller than that. The only object that we know of that could possibly explain this is a black hole because that's the only thing that could both be that small and that massive and, as an added bonus, the funny third thing in this story, not emit any light itself. Oh, oh, wait, didn't I actually say that it, it's a strong radio source? And didn't Mike point out that people say that black holes emit all this high-energy radiation, but people also say that not even light can escape from a black hole? Well, that brings us to the second piece of observational evidence for their effects that I'm going to discuss. Rather than an inconsistency or refutation of black holes existing, this is a Actually, a a strong supporter of them existing. And that's from material that's going around a black hole. As I said, the black hole's size is in part characterized by its event horizon. Nothing we know of can escape it other than perhaps Doctor Who's TARDIS. But that doesn't mean that stuff immediately outside of the event horizon can't escape, including light. In fact, by definition, it can. So if a black hole formed from a star, or even a bunch of stars as the ones in the centers of galaxies are thought to have formed or at least grown from, then the law of conservation of angular momentum means that the black hole is going to spin very, very, very fast. And another prediction of relativity that's been shown to be true is that it's going to drag space-time with it. This causes material to flow along what's called a tendrix line, or a spiral into a black hole past the event horizon. Uh, Maybe past the event horizon, we'll get to that in a little bit. In other words, stuff being dragged into the black hole is going to spin along with the black hole, and along with space, actually. And just like most other material around other objects in the universe, be it transneptunian objects, rings, or planetary rings, or forming stars, or black holes, or even galaxies, the material is going to flatten into a disk. And we've imaged these disks around black holes. As the material is drawn in, the intense gravitational stretching and just all the material colliding that, in part, causes it to form the disk in the first place, is converted to heat. Just like if you rub your hands very, very fast against each other in opposite directions, you generate heat. In the disks around black holes, that material gets so hot that it glows... Very brightly, and it generates light out of all wavelengths, including radio that I mentioned for Sagittarius A star, but also stuff like X rays. Estimates are that 10 to 40 percent of the material orbiting a black hole may be converted into energy and emitted as light before it ever moves past the event horizon. And so, when we observe these intensely bright objects, and the brightness is coming from a very, very very small object in space, relatively speaking, the only object that we know of in astrophysics that could possibly account for this is an accretion disk powered by a black hole, powered by the gravity of a black hole. Is it possible that it's not a black hole, and that it's something else that we've not discovered? Sure. But we already have a theoretical object that is predicted that can account for this observation. So until there's evidence against it, or for a quote-unquote better kind of object to explain it, there's no reason to not think that it's a black hole. And so, those are two methods of looking at the effects on objects that are predicted by black holes to show that black holes likely exist. No other known object can explain them or other related phenomena. So, What's up with physicists, as in real ones that have scientific background and credibility, claiming that black holes don't exist? While the latest example is by Laura Mircini-Hutton, possibly, uh, with co-author Harold Pfeiffer, I can actually pronounce his name, the basic argument is this. First off, Stephen Hawking in 1974 posited that black holes can emit radiation, now known as Hawking radiation, and very, very slowly evaporate. This has to do with uh, quantum mechanics, and when, again, when I say quantum mechanics, I actually mean quantum mechanics, but how is, again, beyond the scope of this episode. But suffice to say, Uh, we actually have made observations that are consistent with what Hawking radiation predicts. So it's fairly well accepted in the astrophysics community now. The second part of this comes from the two people on this paper, Dr., uh, we'll just say M.H. and Dr. Pfeiffer, who used Hawking radiation with a stellar collapse model in a simulation and found from that simulation that the star emits so much Hawking radiation as it collapses that it loses too much mass and it can never reach the critical point to collapse into a black hole. That's about as much as I can simplify the nine pages of research and lots and lots and lots of equations. So, are they right? This is where we get into the process of science. The two authors submitted their paper to a website called archive.org, that's A-R-X-I-V, where x stands for chi the greek letter uh, which is an online non-peer-reviewed repository that anyone can submit papers to there is no indication that this has ever been submitted to journals for a peer review although it probably has given the author's standing but it has not passed peer review and it is not published in any actual journal for some reason, however, there is already a press release out about it and sensationalistic headlines that have made the rounds, stating such things as, quote, New study claims black holes are mathematically impossible, end quote. and that's the one that Mike Barra happened to link to. Since this is far beyond my area of expertise, I look to what the experts are saying. Now, okay, you might call this out as an argument from authority on my part, but remember, the entire story is based on two people's arguments. So that's just as much, if not more, of an argument from authority than me looking to see what others in the field have said. And they haven't really taken kindly to the idea. For example, Dr. Pretorius of Princeton stated, My first impression was that the model they used for the quantum effects was dubious at best, and this is the crucial part to allow them to conclude black holes won't form. If my concerns are justified... My suspicion is there could be substantive changes to the paper through the refereeing process, or peer review process, end quote. That is a kind way of saying that the reviewers may correct the math and show that the entire paper is wrong. Dr. Unruh, who's a theoretical physicist from the University of British Columbia, put it a little bit more plainly, quote, The paper is nonsense. Attempts like this to show that black holes never form have a very long history, and this is only the latest. They all misunderstand Hawking radiation and assume that matter behaves in waves that are completely implausible. Unfortunately, explicit calculations of the energy density near the horizon show it is really, really small instead of being large. Those calculations were already done in the 1970s. To call a bad speculation, quote, has been proven mathematically, end quote, is, shall we say, an understatement, end quote. In addition to all of that, if you're going to claim that black holes don't exist, you need to provide a counter-explanation for all of the evidence that we have of them. The authors don't do this, and they don't even appear to have tried to do this. As I said earlier, though, I'm not an expert in this particular field, but It looks dubious based on what the experts in the field, the other experts in the field, are saying, and this is probably not going to bear out in the long run, just as all other attempts to disprove black holes have over the years. But what about Stephen Hawking? After all, a year ago, in January 2014, news outlets around the world crowed that Stephen Hawking stated, quote, there are no black holes, end quote. Unfortunately, this is a case where the soundbite headline, belies the actual story. At issue is what exactly goes on at the event horizon of a black hole, and this is what I said I'd get to earlier in the episode. Well, I said earlier in the episode, I'd get to it later in the episode, and now we've arrived. Uh, Anyway, so, more to the point, the question is, can a black hole, because of what we know and don't know about the laws of physics, even have an event horizon? I mentioned earlier that this is kind of a place where God divided by zero, as the joke goes. Similarly, our models for how things work have a hard time predicting what occurs at a quantum level. Again, when I say quantum, I actually mean quantum. What's going on with the very nature of matter not only on atomic scales, but those smaller than atoms when you have them moving faster than light, or crossing the threshold of faster than light, or needing to travel faster than light, or or something like that, and the very nature of space-time in which those processes would be occurring, the classic idea of an event horizon holds up, at least as far as we can observe the effects of matter close to it, as in, what we would predict based on stuff 100 years ago, and what we see happens, that happens on a macroscopic scale. But this could be just like Newton's laws of gravity predict very accurately how things behave in our everyday experience, but when you stress them, like when you pass light very near the sun or Mercury's orbit because it's so close to the sun, Newton's laws break down and you need something different, like relativity in that case. Similarly, what happens right near or right at the event horizon at a very large scale is something that our predictive models can explain so far as we can test them. But what happens at the smaller scales, maybe not so much. What Dr. Hawking's work showed about a year ago is that what might be going on at a quantum level at the event horizon of a black hole may mean that it doesn't have to have an event horizon in the classic sense. There might still be ways for energy or light to escape via the weird laws of quantum mechanics. This needs a heck of a lot more work, but it's possible, though how we could possibly test it remains elusive. But that's also where the soundbite came from. Stephen Hawking stated, quote, The absence of event horizons means that there are no black holes, that was a soundbite, in the sense of regimes from which light can't escape to infinity. There is no escape from a black hole in classical theory, but quantum theory enables energy and information to escape from a black hole. End quote. That's very similar to Hawking radiation that he developed 40 years ago, but it's very different from Stephen Hawking literally saying that his entire life's work has been all in vain, which is what Mike explicitly stated as his interpretation of this article, or at least the headline. So, for a wrap-up, where are we after the last 30 minutes of all that exposition? Well, people claim that black holes don't exist. Most scientists claim they do. The evidence for them is based on how they're predicted to affect material around them, and those have borne out in the observations that we've been able to make. But, just like I can't see wind, I can feel and see its effects. Just as I can't see heat from the sun, as in see heat radiating from the sun, I definitely can feel its effects, especially if I wear a black shirt. To say that they don't exist, they isn't black holes, again, forgetting the antecedent, uh, to say that black holes don't exist requires more than just a blanket statement. It requires showing why the predictions of relativity are wrong and explaining what else could cause the phenomenon that are seen and attributed to black holes. Without doing that, it holds as much weight as me saying that, oh, I don't know, the center of the moon doesn't exist because nobody's seen it. Well, I guess a Hollow Moon episode will have to wait for another time. So far, nobody's said that they don't like the logical fallacy segment, and uh, apparently there is such a word as logician. So I'm going to continue with this segment for now. The problem is, as I am uh, very quickly discovering, that there are going to be a lot of duplicates, so I'm going to have to find a way to get the information to be sort of self-contained for new listeners, but not make it a boring copy-paste for steady listeners. If uh, if anyone has ideas, let me know. With that in mind, I've been able to pull out three main logical fallacies from this episode, although I mentioned a few others throughout. Two of the logical fallacies are repeats, the argument from personal incredulity The appeal to ridicule, and then the burden of proof. The first two were discussed last time, the personal incredulity, meaning that you don't personally believe something and therefore it doesn't exist. That's part of Mike's argument. The appeal to ridicule says, isn't this silly and therefore it's not true, which is another part of Mike's argument. Both of these are forms of the red herring fallacy, which is where something seems plausible, but it's ultimately irrelevant, and so it's a diversionary tactic from the main point. It's also, it's, the red herring is very common in mystery novels. It's to keep the reader guessing. You keep throwing plausible ideas, but they're ultimately a diversion from what actually went on. The new fallacy for this episode is the burden of proof. So far, in the two episodes I've done this segment, the fallacies have been under the very broad category of informal fallacies, which is where there definitely is a flaw in the logic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the case being argued is wrong. Burden of proof is outside of that class, but it's also not a formal fallacy where, if you make that argument, you are definitely wrong. Uh, burden of proof is, is a tricksy one, kind of like the Hobbitses. Uh, in skepticism, or science, or in most cases... We emphasize that the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. So if I want to claim that, say, Bigfoot exists, then the burden of proof is mine, not yours, to prove that it doesn't exist. But pseudoscientists like to use this to say that it's the scientists who are making the claim, in this case that black holes do exist, therefore the scientists have the burden of proof to show they do. And, since they can't be directly observed, we haven't met, we as in scientists, haven't met that burden of proof. That's where it's tricksy, uh, because this one seems to make sense. That's where this fallacy becomes situational. For example, in the American legal system, someone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Therefore, the burden of proof is legally on the side of the prosecution. That's how we've defined it as a society. Similarly, with this claim as related to black holes, or science in general, we have to find a process for how science works, and how it's done, and how conclusions are begatten. As I explained in the main segment of this episode, we have theoretical evidence. That's where theories that have made predictions using those theories, and they were later shown to be true, therefore we can make further predictions using those theories, and we can show that black holes theoretically exist we also have observational evidence for the predicted effects of black holes, or at least uh, very, very, very large concentrations of mass in a very, very small space that we don't know how otherwise to explain. Therefore, when one takes a step back and looks at the evidence that we've amassed, black holes are the logical conclusion. It's possible they don't exist, but at this point... The burden of proof in this case, at this point in the research, is not on the scientists, because we've gathered a lot of evidence that they do exist. It's on the people making the claim that they do not exist, and those same people would need to find a way to explain the evidence for black holes within their new no-black-holes paradigm. So, with that said, that's this episode's segment on logical fallacies, and I, again, am looking very much forward to any feedback on it, whether it should be capped, expanded, changed, whatever. But a different kind of feedback that I I haven't done in probably a year or so is Q&A, and I have one in the queue about black holes. This episode's question comes from Mark from Canada, who hopefully still listens to the podcast. And he asked, since black holes can lose mass through Hawking radiation, is it possible for them to lose sufficient mass to no longer be a black hole and become, say, a neutron star? The short answer is no. Uh, While black holes can theoretically lose mass, as Mark stated, by Hawking radiation, that gets into weird properties of quantum mechanics that, again, I'm not going to get into in this episode, What makes a black hole be a black hole is its density. The idea is that once you've compressed something beyond what had stopped it from compressing before, once you've changed the very nature of the material making it up, so far as we know, it's not going to spring back into what it was before, which, now that I think of it, is a good analogy. A spring. With a classic spring, you can stretch or compress it to a certain degree, and it's always going to come back. It's, uh, it's like that normal matter in this analogy. But if you stretch the spring so that the spring is now straight, it's never going to go back into a spring shape, at least on its own. That's like a black hole. Even if you try to push it back into a spring, like uh, removing mass from a black hole through Hawking radiation, it's never going to go back to a spring, just like the matter inside of a black hole, as far as we know, is never going to go back to normal matter that we can explain with our nice, happy classical laws of physics. So with that said, this wraps up the uh, Q&A segment. If you have a question for consideration for the segment that is apparently now very rare, Uh, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. So with that said, I'm not going to do feedback or a puzzler this episode uh, because it's running long and because I'm listening to many, many hours of Coast to Coast AM to do what might turn into a three-part episode on the whole Hale-Bopp, Comet, Companion, Heaven's Gate, Cult, Death, suicide thing. Uh, I'm hoping not three parts, but maybe we'll see. There's a lot of information. Anyway, because I'm working on that, and uh, because I have many trips and lined up for the very near future, I'm going to leave this rather long episode at this point. That wraps up this topic for the 125th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. That's the podcast URL, just replace the dot with an at first one uh, you can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website on the blog post for the episode on the comment uh, on the Facebook page for the podcast or you can even tweet me that's at pseudo p-s-e-u-d-o astro, astro I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and if you have suggestions for topics please feel free to make them Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people on the internet that you'll never meet in real life. So who cares if uh, they don't end up liking it? Well, I might care, but you probably don't.